0: mentioned at the top of the program that we would be trying to speak with some of the people out in the trenches. Here in California, life is to a large extent going on as it normally does. Businesses that are deemed essential have remained open, which means that the people working in them are at risk, just as you are at risk, to go out and patronize them. We need to go out and speak with such people. One person I had in mind was a high school buddy Who is the owner of Ace Hardware. In fact, he's the owner of two Ace Hardware stores in Stockton, the one at Country Club and the one at Fremont Plaza, both of which have remained open. William Stormer and I go back to high school days. I'm confident that Bill has a story to tell and will know how to tell it. I know that because he was a far better student than I in Mr. Van Vactor's English class back at Washington High School. So it's my privilege to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, William Stormer. Thanks, Doug. So you are... Managing a store with, what, 28 employees, I think is what you said?
1: I actually own two stores with 28 employees, and we are considered an essential provider, so we've been open through this whole situation.
0: Which is good, because people do need to keep uh, doing some things, and and I understand you've got uh, nobody ill yet?
1: That is correct. Of my 28 employees... We furloughed one, as I mentioned to you earlier, because of her age. She's, I think, like 79 or 80. She's been in the hardware industry 60 years. I inherited her when I (laughs) bought the businesses. And then two of our employees furloughed themselves because of family issues and concerns. And most recently, I had a young 18-year-old we had to furlough because his father tested positive. Now he did not test positive but we sent him home for 2 weeks just as a precaution. He's as I said he's young, he's very strong, very healthy. We expect him to be back. So other than the fact that we're very short-handed as an essential provider, sales have been phenomenal. Really? Yeah.
0: Better than usual.
1: Far better than usual.
0: Huh. Which
1: is a double-edged sword because we're short-handed We've reduced our working hours to accommodate being shorthanded and put less stress on my employees, and even with all of that, our sales are significantly higher than what they typically are.
0: I myself have been out to uh, hardware stores locally because there's some home projects that needed some attention, and, and, and it's now getting it. Uh, life is going on for us in spite of the you know, these social distancing here in California and in most places. I guess the question I for you, Bill, is, is when do you think that things are going to get back to normal uh, in your area? Because everyone's been champing at the bit to relax um, the restrictions. And I think a lot of people realize that has to be done up to a point, but we've got to do it the right way.
1: Well, I would agree with that completely. And I think we're at a point now, if we look backwards, when both the federal and the various state governments initiated the, the shelter-in-place or the lockdown procedures, there was almost 100% uniform acceptance of it. You know, you didn't see mass protest. You heard some grumbling, but there was so much uncertainty about the potential pandemic and the, the elevation, that spike curve, that people pretty much went along with it. Well, now we're four to six weeks into this process, and we've, we've realized or recognized that leveling out that everyone has talked about And I think if the government doesn't take steps now to start returning society to a normal situation, you're going to start seeing, um, first off, people are going to start to question the decisions the the country and the government is making. They'll start to lose confidence. Pandemic didn't explode exponentially the way that everyone feared. That's a good thing. But now people are beginning to wonder, okay, why can't we go back to work? And the questions that I hear and you and I talked about earlier were, you know, why is Target and Walmart and Ace Hardware allowed to be open but other businesses are not? and people are beginning to question the arbitrariness of some of these decisions.
0: A lot of folks have suggested that you know, a mom-and-pop store might be able to provide you with better protection than going into a Walmart, and it's hard to argue with that. So it does seem, it does seem very unfair with some of, the, some of the way this has gone down.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're, we're walking proof of it. I've got 28 employees. No one has taken ill. No one has tested positive for, for the core ravinus. Now, we have taken, we, we followed all the protocols right from the very beginning. Um, the things that we did is we put plastic barriers up at all of our registers. My employees wear face masks. It's mandatory for the sales floor staff. It's optional for the cashiers that are behind the barriers because they're already behind a plexiglass barrier. We sanitize every surface in the store frequently throughout the day. Um, we also sanitize all of our shopping carts and shopping baskets. That's resulted in a new hire for a, preser- for a person whose only job is to sanitize things in the store. That's wow. all they do all day long. Wow. Uh, we already had hand sanitizer available at our entrance. The hard part has been keeping it filled <laughs> because even Ace Hardware, we-, we can't sell it if we can't get the hand sanitizer through our suppliers. And that's been a problem. So, like a lot of vendors, we have reached out to a lot of different places. In fact, yesterday my manager drove to the Bay Area and picked up several loads of hand sanitizer made by a brewery in Hayward.
0: Here in Fremont, I noticed they they've finally, my local Seven Eleven, to everyone's surprise, has had sanitizer. And I'm wondering if it is not coming from that same outfit that's could local ver- here in Hayward. Could very well be. Yeah.
1: So we're we're having to look beyond our normal chains of supply. Um, Ace Hardware, we still can't get toilet paper. I
0: mean, that was my next question. <laughs> no toilet doing paper. We're
1: okay with hand sanitizer, but for the life of me, I don't understand why we can't get traditional um, toilet paper. Now, if you're willing to use commercial toilet paper, the big giant rolls you see at the airport. <laughs> I can supply that all day long. How sales on are, that, Bill? <laughs> people are reluctant to do it.
0: I would think so. <laughs> How about the disposable gloves? Are you able to keep up with those?
1: We are now. Uh, there was a time period we, we ran out as soon as we, we got them. I mean, the experience has been unique. We would get a dozen cases of gloves in, and we get them in at 8 o'clock in the morning. By noon, they're gone. I'd get a dozen cases of hand sanitizer in and... Before we even put them out on the floor, half of them have already been spoken for, especially by some of our institutional clients. Mm-hmm. And so out of 10, only floor five are going to make it to the floor, and those will be gone in two to three hours. Now, that demand has slacked off tremendously, but we, we still don't carry a heavy back stock in any of the essential items in N95 masks. We have not been able to supply those to the general public in weeks.
0: Well, I guess we all have questions about when, when that aspect is going to get back to normal, as we have questions about just everything about this entire, entire epidemic. And, and I think we just, uh, like, we're waiting for more data. Uh, we, we certainly know people are getting antsy, but uh, I think the fear of a lot of folks is that if we push this and we're not sensible about this and we get people out there interacting, this is going to explode yet again.
1: And I would agree with that. Um, One thing that I, one point I would like to make, and you and I discussed this earlier, is the mental health issues that are developing right now. I honestly believe that probably forty percent of our business is related to what you described earlier. People have time to work on their homes, Mm -hmm. and that's a good thing. Not necessarily the fact that they have chores to do, but the fact that they have chores. do and it's keeping them occupied eliminating a tremendous amount of stillness in their life and and lack of productivity so you know as i analyze what my sales are we're not looking at pandemic supply purchases here we're looking at normal hardware stuff you know the three majors paint electrical and plumbing boom those sales are astronomical gardening at this time of the year those sales are astronomical and it's because people are, it's, again, that benefits the mental health struggles that are on the rise right now because of the sheltering in place.
0: Well, we live in a nation of, of, uh, of nuclear families and a lot of old folks. Uh, it's, we're notorious in the United States for having a lot of lonely old people who aren't getting enough attention from family and friends. And this has got to only make that so much worse.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's essential right now that we maintain those nuclear contacts more so than ever before. And um, Mm -hmm. my mother, thank goodness, she's in good health. She's 91 years old. She lives by herself. But she lives two blocks from a major um, retirement community here in Stockton. And they've been on total lockdown since this began. You can only leave if you're going shopping and you can only leave if you have permission. There are no group dinners. You're you're restricted to live in your individual room or your individual cottage. All three meals every day are served to you. The cafeteria has been closed, the banquet room is closed. I mean, those are the people that are really hurting right now because they can't get visitors and they really can't mingle with their normal social organization within the community itself. They're restricted to the property, into their homes.
0: Very tough. Yeah. We, we can all hope this is going to relax sooner rather than later, but we just there's just no way any of us, any of us can know. Yep. We're going to get a lot of experiments, I think, in the weeks to come as various uh, nations and states and jurisdictions are doing various means to see how things go. And I think by the end of May, we're going to have a real good idea of what's working and not working.
1: I'm hoping so, to be honest with you. We're blessed in that we're an essential provider. So from a business standpoint... My business has done well, but uh, I'm 67, so I pretty much shelter at home. I don't go to the store very often, but, you know, I'm one of these guys that has so many little chores around the house. This has actually been quite enjoyable for me, but my heart goes out to those people that are in major urban centers that are living in a 12-by-20-foot apartment, and that's all they've got.
0: Well, I, I saw a recent article about the people living in Hong Kong where they actually subdivide apartments, and people in those conditions are, literally have, like, 100 square feet. L- wow. Less, about that of a jail cell, or less. Yeah,
1: 10 by 10.
0: So how do you, you know, how, if you're staying isolated and living in that, well, I just think you should thank our blessings here in California that most of us don't have to, uh, to face that sort of thing. That is true. Well, Bill Stormer, thank you for speaking with us. I appreciate, every time I go in the store, I tell people, I appreciate the fact that you're here. I do appreciate the fact that you are there.
1: Good, good. Do that. My cashiers appreciate that. My floor staff appreciates that. Not enough people think to say thank you to the people that are serving us, and they don't have to. They could pull out and go on unemployment right now, but they're serving us, and we need to be thankful for that.
0: Well, as I mentioned to our Dr. Killam, who spoke last week about what life, like, life is like down in Florida, we might have him come back at the end of the month. We might want to have you come back as well and give an update to see how things are going right here in, uh, in the Central Valley.
1: I'd be glad to.
0: Thanks again, Bill.
1: All right. Take care.
0: We should note in relationship to the conversation we just had that according to the New York Times, things aren't going necessarily so well out in the Empire State. A union representing 900,000 grocery workers said last week that 30 of its members had died from COVID-19 and another 3,000 had taken sick. They also noted a survey of 5,000 members noted that 85 percent said that customers in their stores were not practicing social distancing as recommended. Meanwhile, the Washington Post has recorded that at Meanwhile, the Washington Post has noted that at least 41 grocery workers have died from COVID-19 and 1,500 have tested positive. Fear, of course, has led many store employees to stay home or quit, leaving markets short-staffed and scrambling to fill hundreds of thousands of jobs. One worker was quoted as saying, it feels like a war zone. And although the British television drama I, Claudius, uh, couldn't exactly be described as a war zone. I would agree with The Economist's summary of it as a memorable saga of bloodshed and intrigue. I'd heard for many, many years that this was really worth taking in before The Economist uh, made an opinion on that. And uh, boy, is it ever good. Very strong performances by actors uh, John Hurt, Derek Jacoby, Brian Blessed, and Sean Phillips, as well as Patrick Stewart. It's a story told in flashback by the aged Claudius as he recalls the literally poisonous feuds that engulfed his family. While taking it in, I reached for a copy of the Twelve Caesars, uh, which I, I was sure was one of the sources for this um, this story, and and discovered that the translation I have of the Twelve Caesars was by none other than Robert Graves. Now I can't pretend to be well versed in the classics, but I've, I've read a few, and I'm and I'm glad to say that I've read this one because it's a great read. It is widely considered to be the most vivid and raciest accounts we have of, uh, of ancient Rome, and although it's pretty much packed wall-to-wall with gossip, Suetonius did have uh, access to the uh, imperial records under the later Emperor Hadrian. I'm I'm kind of sorry that it took sheltering in place to finally get me uh, to stand still uh, long enough to, to take this in, but you know, I guess this is one of the, um, you have to say, the upsides of our current predicament. Mr. Millen hastens to add that if you start watching and it seems a little slow, stay with it, because that's well, that's just, it's true. It does start a little slow, but boy, does it pick up. To quote from The Economist, the story is so compelling that it overcomes shortcomings and is above all a meditation on the corrupting influence of absolute power, Place all authority in the hands of one individual in society as at risk from his follies and petty jealousies. Something to keep in mind in the modern era. I do have to add that the portrayal by Sean Phillips of the Emperor Augustus's wife, Livia Drusilla, is so nasty that uh, the Encyclopedia of Rome that I have specifically says... And although Livia was suspected of procuring the deaths of rivals to her son, who did later become the Emperor Tiberius, this may be unjust, noting that mortality rates were high at the time. And anyway, at this point, it's certainly unprovable. You know, and because Suetonius is such a lively read, I'm tempted to quote from it, but I'm going to resist the temptation. While it is true that probably only on Radio Parallax will hear Suetonius quoted, we're pretty sure you're still going to be aware of the fact that you're not listening to Rush Limbaugh. You know what I'm saying? There's certainly a lot of recommendations of things that can be uh, taken in uh, uh, via the various subscription channels now available to us. Mr. William does want to remind you that you can also read books. Good recommendation. I am following his lead on that, currently reading both Albert Camus' The Plague and a spy novel by (laughs) Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt. We did have his son, St. John Hunt, on this program some years ago to tell some rather modern racy tales. I was always curious as to whether E. Howard Hunt was any good as a writer, and I have to say, he's not bad. Another documentary we'll have to take in uh, probably during this whole month of May at our disposal might be uh, David Attenborough's Life of Birds. The Week magazine described it as a still-dazzling 10-part series from 1998. I bet that's worth seeing. Something I'm I'm a little less sure about might be (laughs) the uh, Apple TV Beastie Boys story. Although I did have to laugh to read that in 1987, three young friends from New York City watched their lives change when their spoof single, Fight for Your Right to Party, was embraced as an anthem for a rap-hungry generation. I did not know it was a spoof. We were, however, aware of the fact that the right to party was not listed in the Bill of Rights. Of course, now that everyone is using probably more than ever uh, screens to uh, act as babysitters, we remind you of what uh, came out last year. And we reported on, on this program, various academic studies, suggesting that, at least as of last year, on average, children were spending two to three hours a day in front of screens. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that young children watch only one hour of quality programming per day. Of course, we've come to conclude on this program that the American Academy of Pediatrics is only about one half step away from recommending that parents keep their children away from rocks and sticks because they can do harm. But speaking of rocks and sticks, and how's that for a segue, uh, we do hope you're out enjoying nature, dear listener. Just because we have to be to a degree cooped up doesn't mean that we can't get out and enjoy the fresh air, the blue sky, the white clouds, the green grass, and spring, which we are currently in the middle of. We reported last summer that ScienceDaily.com is recommending two hours a week as a realistic target for many people. Well, we all have a little more time to work with these days, so let's see if we can't do better. Let's try to make it two hours a day, shall we? I'm grateful for the fact And blessed by having a large backyard with lots of raised beds in it. Oh, I mean, you know, beds of plants. I have been busy uh, trying to fix carbon, (laughs) do what I can to reverse global warming these past few weeks. And yes, a lot of people do think that uh, one way we may be able to, at least in part, combat the rising CO2 in our atmosphere is to put it back into the soil via green leafy material, and of course also plant lots of trees. They're still working the details out on this, but I have uh, no doubt whatsoever that to some degree it would work. And in the past week, we celebrated Earth Day's 50th anniversary. There was an editorial on this very topic in the New Scientist magazine's April 18th issue, and it was written by Gary Paul Nabhan. Dr. Nabhan has been on Radio Parallax for pleased to be able to say. And in the essay he noted, I was there at the beginning. In 1970, I was a 17-year-old intern, part of a roughly 80-person team running Earth Day from its headquarters in Washington, D.C. The event was described as a national day of environmental teach-in. Earth Day founder Senator Gaylord Nelson turned much of the event planning over to youth activists. This gave the movement a feeling of playful exuberance as well as passionate commitment much like the climate school strikes movement launched by Greta Thunberg decades later. Said Gary Navin, we couldn't have imagined that Earth Day would be the largest public event in U.S. history. Remember on the very first Earth Day, walking to school as part of that celebration? Evidently 20 million U.S. citizens took part in that first Earth Day, and I'm glad it's still with us. And we're glad that Earth Day did go global. In less than two decades, 200 million people were taking part in at least 140 countries. I'm glad it's still with us. And Mr. McMillan stresses that he plans to fight for his right to celebrate Earth Day. We needed to keep environmental matters uh, on the front burner, holding a report in my hand, noting that we apparently experienced the biggest U.S. honeybee winter die-off yet this last winter. I lost one of my two hives, and my neighbor lost both of his. So we're batting one for four right now, and boy, sure like to do better. Well, the one hive that I do have has sent out something like eight swarms. It was swarming twice in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, it's doing well. Now, some people do question um, at least some of the groups that are out there pretending to be pro-environment. I don't know whether Defenders of Wildlife is... I don't know how legit they are. But I am holding in my hand the 2020 California survey that they sent me under the headline Official Questionnaire. And, well, let me just let me just run some of the questions by you, dear listener, and see what you think. How would you answer this? Which of these is your favorite wild animal? Bald eagle? Bison? Manatee? Florida panther? Sea otter? You know, I was going to go with the manatee for sure but I'm sure a lot of you are partial to the sea otter. Question two, should America allow the drilling of oil in the Arctic even if it could push polar bears to extinction? Yeah, I was, pre- I was prepared to mark yes in sending it back. And uh, question three, do you think it's okay to sacrifice mother polar bears and their cubs in their dens in pursuit of corporate profits? I thought a yes answer to that might wake them up. How about question four? Do you think we should end the illegal poaching and trafficking of endangered species? Nah. I really like question eight. Which groups do you think have more influence with Congress when it comes to considering environmental laws? Big oil and big business have more influence or conservationists and scientists have more influence or the balance is about right? Anyway, this questionnaire is a marketing gimmick failed to engage me. I hope they're doing good work out there. Because in addition to the honeybee being in trouble, a lot of people are fearful that we may be seeing the end of the western monarch butterfly. The new data shows it's been another terrible year for the insect populations. I am, however, happy to report that in my backyard, I've seen more than one monarch. Several have come by in the past few weeks, which is more than I can say in the last couple years, so there's some hope. I did specifically plant milkweed to try and induce them to come pay a visit, and uh, I guess it's paying off. Now, a lot of people are home with a lot of time on their hands and deciding to do some cooking, baking and such that they might not normally do. I do get a kick out of the fact that New Scientist magazine now has a science of cooking column that's uh, oftentimes pretty interesting. And what do you know? A few weeks ago, they were talking about yeasts, this may mark the first time in the program that we have, we have gone on to the topic of yeasts twice. Said author Sam Wong of this column, if you buy yeast, you get one species, Saccharomyces crevisiae, a reliable and predictable bread maker. But he notes, for most of history, humans have used a living culture of wild yeasts and bacteria to produce bread. We call this bread sourdough and the culture a starter. You can get an established starter from someone else, but it's very easy to make your own. All you have to do is create an environment where wild yeasts want to grow. Some of the microbes you need will be in the flour already. Others, particularly bacteria, may come from you. In a recent study, researchers sent the same flour and starter recipe to 18 different bakers. They found a huge variety in the microbes in the resulting starters, and this was reflected in the flavor of the bread. Now, I know for a fact that back in the old days, before you'd go down and buy a packet of Fleischman's yeast, people that wanted to leaven their bread and cakes would put the dough out on the windowsill and hope that the yeast would blow in and do their thing, which it's amazing to think they do. As for sourdough bread, personally, I could live without it. I don't consider sourdough bread food. And no, these opinions have nothing to do with the fiasco of the Radio Parallax sourdough bread bake-off of last year. I was robbed! But anyway, we hope you are experimenting with things in the kitchen. And a lot of musicians, of course, are experimenting with music-making with a lot of time on their hands. I am very sorry to note, and Mr. Millen no doubt will also be very sorry to note, but for entirely different reasons... Then owing to the COVID-19 crisis, yours truly will not be able to fulfill his plans of going sometime this spring or summer back east to take in one of the concerts performed by the immortal Billy Joel. A couple years back, Joel performed his 100th show at Madison Square Garden. Yours truly notes with some sadness that it's been 25 years since he released an album. Joel says he no longer writes songs because he's decided that they fall short of his early work. He's been quoted as saying certain composers only have so much productivity in them. Mozart wrote more than 40 symphonies. Beethoven wrote nine. Doesn't mean one guy was better than the other. And although Mr. Millen does not often agree with Billy Joel, he does point out that the Beatles never wrote any symphonies. And yet many think they're pretty good. And because this program likes to offer you some valuable practical tips, uh, besides, you know, listen to more Billy Joel, I have a couple here in um, regards to the masks that we are all wearing at the moment. The Week published a little blurb titled, How to Wear a Mask Without Fogging Your Glasses. This is probably worth going through. You can wash the lenses of your glasses. Surgeons use this trick to keep their breath from fogging the lenses. A thin film left by the soap prevents condensation. I'm sure you can also use those um, windshield treatment to keep the raindrops from sticking. I'm sure that would work. Another solution is to buy a better mask. Few masks provide a perfect seal at the nose and cheekbones, but the purpose-built masks can can beat the homemade. I've experienced that already. You might also add a metal nose clip. If your mask has no built-in nose clip, you can try incorporating one by taping or stapling in a pipe cleaner or a paper clip or a self-adhesive fasteners like they sell in office supply stores. And you can also try a folded tissue. This apparently is very popular in Japan. It helps absorb your breath's moisture. The tissue sits across the bridge of the nose and can be secured with medical tape. There you have it. You know, we really neglected science topics on this program. Uh... Well, except for those related to the COVID-19. But there's still some cool things going on out there in the world of science, especially astronomy. Uh, We do recommend, dear listener, that you go out sometime in the not-too-distant future, look in the western sky after dark, and check out Venus. It's about as bright as it ever gets right now, negative 4.7 magnitude. It's as bright as it's going to be in the year 2020, and it's quite a sight. You should check it out.
1: How bright is
0: Beetlejuice now? I'm glad you asked, Mr. McMillan. Beetlejuice is recovering nicely and is getting back to its usual brightness. Thank God. In other space news, uh, as you may or may not be aware, the Earth has apparently now been visited, or the solar system anyway, has apparently now been visited by our second object from interstellar space. We know that it comes from interstellar space by how quickly it's moving. It's moving too dang fast to be captured by our sun and remain in orbit around it. The first one, Womuomua, it was was later named, appears to have been an asteroid from interstellar space. The second visitor was a comet called Comet Borisov, after the man that found it. Um, They've taken a good look at Comet Borisov because, like all comets, it's going to emit dust and gases, and you should be able to tell from the light it puts off what its composition is. Noted New Scientist magazine, using observations to analyze the chemical composition of Borisov's coma, which is the cloud of gas that forms around a comet as heat from a star warms it, they note that most comets in our solar system have comas made mostly of water, but comet Borisov's appears to comprise mostly carbon monoxide. Martin Gordner at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center said it's quite shocking to look at the data and see all this carbon monoxide. This chemical signature indicates that Borisov formed in a stellar system that wasn't quite like our own. Said Gardner. carbon monoxide ice disappears very easily when you heat it, so we think that Borisov formed in a system that was colder than ours. It's a sort of a snowman from a cold and dark place. And a new analysis down here on planet Earth of the huge eruption of the Kilauea volcano on Hawaii in 2018 leads researchers to conclude that heavy rainfall affected and basically produced the event. Of course, I like the reaction of Carolina Pagli at the University of Pisa in Italy, who after hearing this hypothesis said, it's definitely a possibility. And in our final item for today's program, we note... I think with happiness that this week the U.S. Library of Congress has said that the Village People's 1978 song YMCA, which has inspired partygoers to shape out letters on the dance floor, was one of 25 recordings to be added to the National Recording Registry. Every year recordings deemed to be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant are added to the registry at the world's largest library and research arm of the U.S. Congress. And to that I add, young man, there's no need to feel down. I said, young man, pick yourself off the ground. I said, young man, because you're in a new town, there's no need to be unhappy.
1: It's fun to stay in the
0: That is it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to William Stormer, keeping the good people in Stockton supplied with their needed goods. We're going to try and reach out on next week's program to get a report from a land down under. That is, if we can find our Australian correspondent, we'll give it a go. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.